The Beatles told us that all we need is love. Well, it's probably not a person on the planet that would disagree with that. The problem is that we disagree on what love is. What is love? You ask a young woman and she'll tell you it's emotion. You ask a young man, he'll tell you it's sex. You ask a liberal and they'll tell you it's social work. You ask a conservative and they'll tell you it's truth. You ask an older person and they'll tell you it's commitment. What is this love that we all affirm in word but not in definition? Scott Peck's best-selling book called The Road Less Traveled has a very interesting dialogue between he and a woman. And this woman says, I do not want to live, I cannot live without my husband. I love him so much. And when I respond, as I frequently do, you're mistaken. You do not love your husband. She says, what do you mean? I just told you that I couldn't live without him. And he says, I try to explain what you describe is parasitism, not love. Which fits well into the series that we're currently in, wrapping up today, about how to fear God and not fear people. Or that is, how to uh, worship the Lord and not worship people. How to need the Lord and to not need people, in the sense that people need to fill us up with what we feel like we need. And we look to them instead of to the Lord to meet our needs. So far in this series, we have come through what you might call a progression of thought and hopefully of maturity of the way of thinking. Because when we struggle a lot of times with fearing people or needing people, it's because we don't feel good about ourselves and we need people to make us feel better. The world tells us that we can boost our self-esteem through having people make us feel better. In fact, uh, one survey showed that the number of American preschool teachers, administrators, parents, and child development specialists said the most important thing for a child to learn in preschool is self-reliance and self-confidence. Only 5% of those same specialists said that children, the primary thing that children need to learn is sympathy, empathy, and concern for other people. It says what we need to teach our kids is essentially self-esteem. But the problem with that, as we've seen throughout this series, is why do we have such a low self-esteem to begin with? It's because of shame. It's because we don't feel good about ourselves for some reason. And when we get right down to it, the reason that we often don't feel good about ourselves is because we do things that are wrong. We do things that we're not proud of, that we're ashamed of. Either things that were done to us, sin that was done to us, or sin that we ourselves have done. We can't get rid of our problem of low self-esteem, which is essentially shame. We can't get rid of our shame unless we get rid of our sin. And we can't get rid of our sin unless we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, who died to take away our sin. He's taken away our sin and he's taken away our shame. And so, really, the need for self-esteem is not really there, biblically. You don't see a need for self-esteem. You want a biblical view of yourself? That's fine. Go to Psalm 8. Uh, I consider the heavens and all that you have made. Who am I? David asks. And the reply is, I've created you, David, to rule over 
all these things. You are to rule under God, which is what Adam and Eve were set out to do initially. But even though we've placed our faith in Christ, we still struggle on a daily way of also putting our faith in people. We know God loves us, but we feel like we need people to love us too. And this is another line that our culture, and sadly some of our churches and religious institutions have taught us as well, that we are essentially empty tanks, love tanks, you might say. Uh, emotional tanks that other people fill. Some people make positive contributions to your emotional tank, and you feel good about that relationship. They make negative uh, withdrawals from that, and you feel bad to where essentially you are dependent in who you are on how other people treat you. And you need them, even still. And so we talked about that. We looked at Jeremiah 17, fearing people or fearing God. And why should we fear God? Well, because our own heart is dece deceived. It's, it's uh, desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Only the Lord is the one that examines and knows the heart. Well, if we're not to fear people, but we are to fear God, how do we do that? How do we gain a fear of the Lord? Well, we saw last week in Isaiah that the fear of the Lord is only terror when we bring sin into the presence of God. The fear of the Lord is worship when we bring forgiveness of sin into the presence of God. I'd like for us to look today at a, a video. It's from a, uh, a movie called Tuesdays with Morey in which this uh, sports writer is uh, basically interviewing Maury in a number of times, and Maury is at now at the end of life, played by Jack Lemmon, and he's reflecting on all the things that he's learned. And one of the things that he shares with this, this interviewer in this particular scene that we'll see is essentially the whole thrust of what we're going to learn from the Lord Jesus today. And so I'll let the video tell us, and then we'll get into the text for the morning. almost sounds like he's quoting scripture. Let's look together at Matthew chapter 22. We need people. We are dependent on people, but as we've seen in our series, it's not the way we often think. I need, a wife says, I need my husband to listen to me. I need you to pay attention to me. I need to be affirmed. I need emotionally, essentially, to have my tank filled so that I feel good about myself. Well, we've seen that biblically that's not really the case at all. We need people, but not in the emotional sense that we think. We need people in order to fulfill the Great Commission. The, uh, the I cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. Paul says, we need one another. You can't say that we don't, but we need one another in a way to fulfill the Great Commission, not to make us emotionally feel good. In Matthew 22, Jesus essentially goes on a talk show in some sense. You might picture him as you would picture somebody like on Larry King Live, where you've got this um, this conservative put on the news or put on the talk show and he's grilled and he's asked questions almost poking fun at the conservative way that he views scripture. 
Jesus is asked here in Matthew 22, down actually in verse 35 is where we'll start. He's asked a question by a lawyer. And you and I might hesitate the answer, but it's one which Jesus immediately is able to solve. Matthew 22, 35 uh, through 38. Let's look at that. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him. Asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. A lawyer is not so much like what we think of a lawyer today. A lawyer is one who was an expert in the law. He was a Bible knowledge guy. He was the guy who was an expert in the law. And this expert in the law asks Christ, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Christ said it's simply to love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and elsewhere, he says, strength. And I don't think that it's necessarily saying that there is a part of you that's heart, there's a part of you that's soul, there's a part of you that's mind as much as just every part of who you are, physically, spiritually, love the Lord your God with all of it and no exceptions. This is the greatest commandment. And you might expect, if you've been around church for some time, this word for love, you've probably heard the Greek word agape. It's what it is. It's the word here that talks not about feeling love for God, not about I feel love for God, but it's, it's, a, it's a word that means that you do love. You, you will to love. You choose and you act on it. It is a love of decision. Well, how do you love God in action? Well, look at the next verse, verse 39, because they are related. Jesus says the second, meaning the second commandment, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So your practical question might be, well, how can I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? There it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can love God by showing love to other people in practical ways. Calvin Miller says this, Christians state glibly that they love the whole world while they permit themselves animosities within their immediate world. But loving the world at large can only be done by loving face to face the world that is not so distant. It is foolish to say we love humanity. It's people that we can't stand. I read someplace that Julian Lennon, when asked about his father, John Lennon, uh, what he thought about him, and he basically said, among some other things, that Julian felt it was kind of hypocritical, and that, that was actually his words. He says, I, I think he's a hypocrite. Because what he meant was that John Lennon would, would go all over the world and sing about world peace, and yet he couldn't have peace in his own home. And Julian was able to see through that. That's essentially what Calvin Miller is saying. And in some sense, it's essentially what Jesus is saying when he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love God and not love people including those within your own home. And you can't have animosities. 
What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? A lot of times we'll look at this and we'll think that it means to give people whatever they want. To be loving is to be giving, is to be a servant, is to give up. And so you're continually giving out without much discernment. But it's not loving, for example, to give an alcoholic a drink or to provide an atmosphere where that life can go on with no accountability. It's not love to let a child continue in disobedience. Sometimes we will mistake love for being nice, and we think that if somebody perceives that we're not being nice, that we're not being loving. To where loving is, whatever loving definition is, is placed on the other person's perception of how nice you are. You're not being nice, you're not being loving. And what we do is we'll set ourselves up essentially to be manipulated by other people. And they say, well, you're not being loving, and so you go, oh, well, I don't want to not not be loving, and so you give in to whatever it is they say. That's not what this means. Paul applied this verse to marriage in the book of Ephesians when he told husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. Love your neighbors yourself. It's the same idea. And he explains what he means by that. He says, you know, you don't neglect your body, but you care for it. In the same way, husbands, you're to care for the needs of your wife. To the Philippians, Paul again said the same thing, where he says, don't merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. In Romans, Paul said it this way, Romans 13. On the screen it says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, and then he quotes the law, he says, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Debt Financial debt is used here as an example of love. That is, that we are to owe nothing to anyone. What that means is basically don't borrow what you can't pay back. Don't continually be in debt to anyone, but rather continually be in debt love, regarding love. That is a debt that you can never pay toward other people. And notice that all of these commands that he gives here focus us Keep us from idolizing people. Adultery, murder, stealing, coveting, all of this represents taking from people what you want or what you perceive that you need. And essentially, the Bible gives us here in its greatest command a simple to-do list. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this, what this will do is begin to release you from the fear of people. You don't need to fear people, or you don't need to need people, but rather, you need to love them. At the end of a very long letter, C.S. Lewis penned these words. He says, When I've learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, meaning his wife, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest, at the expense of God, and instead of God, I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Peter helps us with our understanding of this overarching command to love when he says in his first letter, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, 
fervently love one another from the heart. Now look at that verse again. This is one we've seen before. Peter commands those who are sincerely loving. He says, now I want you to fervently love one another. Those who are loving, he says, I want you to love. Well, what's the catch there? Well, the catch is that he's using two different words for love. The first one, sincere love of the brethren, is the word Philadelphia. It's the city of what? Brotherly love, right. It's a love that feels good. It is a love where you enjoy being around somebody. It's, it's the potluck lunch love where we all enjoy being together and the fellowship is wonderful and we feel good around each other and enjoy being with each other. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of a love. It's a biblical love. And he even commends them for it. He says, that's a great job. Believers have this kind of love toward one another. But this Philadelphia love has within it only feelings of pleasure. And so it can very quickly turn into selfishness or conditional love when that pleasure is no longer there. And I, I'd say the vast majority of the relationships today, both Christian and non-Christian, begin and end around this Philadelphia feel-good love, which is why people will sometimes say to me in my office, I just don't love them anymore. I just don't feel love for them anymore. What they're saying is Philadelphia love. It's a love of feeling. It's a love of circumstance. But it can't stand on its own, which is why... Peter goes on to say, add to your Philadelphia feel-good love the second one, fervently love one another from the heart. And that second word for love is the word agape. It is a love that has nothing to do with feelings. It means everything to do with your will that you choose to love. And this is very helpful as we end the series on not needing people, but rather loving people. Because it would be very easy to have the Philadelphia love, and that's all there is, that we need people in order to feel good. But Peter says, you've got to go beyond that. That Philadelphia love cannot stand on its own, or the relationships will crumble. You have to add to the love of being around each other, that having a good time, be it marriage, be it Christian fellowship, friendship, any relationship that gets beyond the surface. You have to add to the love of feeling good, the love of will and commitment. Otherwise, it won't last. God commands us to go beyond feeling love for one another to showing love for one another. So think about this for just a second. Ask yourself a question. Do you show love to others only when they make you feel good? Are there people in your life that you see coming that you decide to duck down a dark alley you see coming, you decide, oh, good grief, here goes an hour. Because you know they're going to provide nothing for you, you don't want to be around them. That's the Philadelphia love. But we need to go beyond that to saying, all right, here comes an inevitable conversation. I'm going to show them love. Henry Nouwen wrote, if you allow somebody to love you, that love will take you to painful places. That means that you may have to give up the ball game, guys, in order to play with your kids. That means that you may have to hurt when somebody moves off. That means that you may have to make your home a place of ministry, not just a place of refuge. 
Begin to pursue people in order to love them, not to have them meet your needs. Great principle from our series and from our text today. What is your obligation to people? Not to need them in the sense of emotionally, but to love them in the sense of serving them. Andrew Murray said, My relationship with God is part of my relationship with men. Failure in one will cause failure with the other. Mother Teresa said, I have found the paradox that if I love until it hurts, then there is no more hurt, but only more love. See, this is the hardest thing that you're ever going to do in your life. Because essentially the problem with humanity in sin is self-interest. It's selfishness, the bottom line. The problem in your marriage is selfishness. The problem in our church is selfishness. The problem in the world is selfishness. It's self-interest. Essentially pride. Remember we said a couple weeks ago the Bible always speaks to us in terms of responsibilities rather than rights. I have the responsibility to love you. I don't have the right to be loved by you. I have the responsibility to encourage you. I don't have the right to be encouraged by you. Otherwise, the responsibility that you have to consider others better than yourselves gives me the right to be considered better than you. You see, responsibility and right can't be put on equal footing. Pursue others in order to love them, not to have them love you or to meet your needs. You know, a life lived in absolute desperate pursuit of people ends in futility. You know why, as we've talked about? Because your perception of what you need is always going to be bigger than anybody's ability to fill it, including God's. Solomon tried this. Aren't you so glad the book of Ecclesiastes is in the Bible? You see Solomon doing essentially what our world is doing today. The American culture is the book of Ecclesiastes that we are looking to fulfill every American male's dream of wine, women, and song, which is what Solomon did. He says, I got the money, I got the time, I got the absolute sovereign rule over the nation. I'm going to pursue whatever I want to try to find meaning and pleasure in this life. And at the end of his life, after trying everything the best that the world has to offer, Solomon came down and said, you know what? It's all meaningless. The best that this world has to offer is not enough. It's vanity. It's chasing the wind. And here was Solomon's bottom line at the end of Ecclesiastes. He says, the, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. After chasing a life of meaningless idols, of self-satisfaction, Solomon says, this is it. You know, I'll be honest with you, there were times, especially in my early years here, where I would take this stage eager for the applause that it would produce. I don't mean literally the applause, but I mean finishing, walking down, and getting slapped on the back. Great job. Good job, Wayne. And if I didn't hear that, honestly, sometimes I'd think I'd blown it. That somehow I hadn't encouraged, that somehow I hadn't done a good job. And I would feel like a failure. And I'd mope around for the day. Don't look so pious. You do the same thing, don't you? At the family reunions, don't you want to be looked at as respected and successful? At the high school reunions, 
well, it's my job, and yeah, I'm responsible for such and so, and you want to look good to people, don't you? You want them to affirm you. You want to look young. I saw a commercial this past week where this 24-year-old model on TV is selling some kind of cream to make you look young. And I'm thinking, you don't need that. You're selling that. We're not going to look like you. You look like that because you're 24, not because you use that cream. <laughs> right? But we are so desperate to be affirmed by other people. We are so desperate to hang on to the beauty that is fleeting. The Bible tells us it's fleeting. It will pour out the money, we'll go to the gym, we'll do all kinds of stuff under the guise of being healthy, when really is we want to look good so that we can receive the praise of men. So the next time, this, uh, this is probably the point in the message where Brian was thinking about the marathon. We didn't, he, he duplicated the last point, so we don't have it up there. But you can look at your bulletin. Uh, the next time you're tempted to mope, and to feel sorry for yourself, ask yourself a, different, a difficult question. What is my duty? Solomon says, here's the bottom line. You fear God, and you keep his commandments. You fear God, and you do what you're supposed to do. You see, what has helped me about coming off this stage and not feeling like I have to have you all tell me I did a great job is to do my best to do a great job to the glory of God, not to the glory of Wayne. Admittedly, there are times when I still struggle with that. Obviously, it's, a, it's part of who we are. You struggle with it in your vocation, in your family. You still struggle with the fear of man. But I tell you what, when you're moping around feeling like you're a failure, what can you do? Quit looking at how you've blown it and ask, what is my duty? To fear God and to obey His commandments. One man said, the question to ask at life's end is not so much what have I accomplished, but whom have I, whom have I loved and how courageously. Fear God and love people. It's the greatest commandment. But now that you know that, how will you live differently? Let's pray together. Lord God, we look in your word today at nothing new. And yet what we find there is the most difficult command because it covers all of them. And that is to love you and to love people. And Father, as we finish this series today, we want to affirm our love of you, our need for you, both physically and spiritually. And we also, Lord, want to confess our need for people in order to fulfill the Great Commission. But Lord, help us not to need people beyond that, to not be so eager to have people fill us emotionally that we're willing to compromise and we're willing to worship them as opposed to you. Instead, Lord, let our need of people diminish and our love for people increase, that the Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Lord bless you.